Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Take your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew. And if you're using one of those, it should be right around page uh, 1,194. And over the last few weeks, uh, we have been talking about disciple making. Everyone say disciple making. And really, we've been talking about what it looks like to be a disciple who makes more disciples. Now, I want to clarify that a disciple, that, that, that's one of those, I call them Christianese words. That if you were to go to some random person on the street who's not a follower of Jesus and throw out the word disciple, they might look at you kind of weird. Um, or they might go, is that a band? Is that? Um, and, and the simple explanation of that is uh, all of us are disciples of something. And a disciple is simply one who says, I follow or I seek to be like. And so you can see where this concept is one that every one of us embodies at some level. Because at some level, every one of us is following someone or striving to be like someone. Now whether you can identify that, what you are a disciple of in your own life is a different question. But every one of us, don't be mistaken, even if you are new to this whole idea of following Jesus, even if this is a, a fresh concept to you, every one of us is a disciple. We're a disciple of something. Okay? So you turn to your neighbor and say, you're a disciple. The question really is, am I, what am I a disciple of? And our mission is to help each other become mature disciples of Jesus. At the end of the day, uh, as a church, our aim, our goal of everything we do here is that you would be equipped to follow Jesus. And not just, I, I want to clarify something, being a disciple, not just that you would be equipped to follow Jesus, but that as you are following Jesus, as you are going, that you would be becoming more like Jesus. Because we can follow something and absolutely fail to become like it. However, I would argue that the more you seek to follow something, the more you become like whatever you're following. Now, this whole idea of the Christian life... Uh, in Corinthians, Paul writes that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? 
He is a new creation. And as we think about that, we step back. I wanted to give you a visual of this because the reality is we come to Christ and it's not that the substance of who we are all of a sudden dissipates, but rather when intersected with the spirit of God, we become something else. Now, these types of illustrations all fall short in some manner, because if we were to really stop and ponder what it means to be made new in Christ, it would mean that whatever the content is here, it would need to be, in essence, thrown out and replaced by something completely different. And yet, we can look at this and see that I've got two pitchers of water here, and if I add substance to it, something does, in fact, change. But one of the things you may notice is... The substance of change is still somewhat what? It's still somewhat separate. And in fact, Galatians talks about this tension or this fight between that of our flesh and that of the spirit of God. Now, some of you may look more like this, that the truth about the gospel penetrates deep within and yet if I were to pour you a glass of this before doing something it would not taste very good it might have a bit of flavor but it's going to be pretty bitter and it needs uh, shaken or stirred right of which I'm not going to do right now others of you may look more like this where the truth about the gospel in Christ intersects at the surface and yet maybe due to your life experience or whatever you've endured you are hardened to the place that it does not penetrate beneath the surface either way neither of these though intersected with something that could change the fabric of what it is neither of these have become what they could become because it needs stirred up now, this sets the precedence for what we're going to talk about today because in the midst of us navigating a life where we are subsequently seeking to follow and become more like Jesus, it does, it's, it's no mystery that we here proclaim there is salvation in no one else. There is hope of transformation in none other than Jesus himself. This rooted not in some ideology we've created, but rather in the words of Jesus himself when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John fourteen six. But the question becomes, we can hear that, we can know that, but what do we do with that? Now, at the surface level, you and I are really prone to hear these truths and we're prone to ask ourselves the question, what am I doing with this in my own life? And that's this uh, orientation of our faith where we go, it's about me and Jesus. Me and Jesus got a thing and we're going to grow in that thing. Well, the church has never biblically been about us as individuals and the person of Christ. It has always been about us as a whole. Living and existing as the body of Christ. In fact, Paul goes to great lengths to talk about this and explain it when he says, where is the, where is the body without the sense of smell or the sense of sight? Or all of these things. If I don't have one of the members of my body, then I cease to be a full body. The same is true about the family of Christ. You and I need one another. 
So now you could turn to your neighbor and say, you need me. And some of you laugh at that, right? Because some of you may be looking at the person around you going, you are the reason I struggle week to week. (laughs) Right? And yet, within the body of Christ, we get this idea that you and I would be better off if everyone would just think a little more like me. And yet I tell you that if everyone thought just like you, the church would be extremely boring. And it would cease to be the church. The very nature of the image of God looks like the diversity amongst peoples of all nations and all personalities. Stop and think about that for a minute. It's one of the coolest aspects of God's character that I can stop and ponder. If we cut out any one part of the image of God, we miss the entirety of his image altogether. And I say that to bring value, but also to challenge us, because then the question becomes, not what is what should it look like for you, for for me and Jesus, but rather what should it look like for us As we look to Jesus as the initiator of the only way to God. How do we corporately respond? More importantly, how should we? And that's the basis on which we're going to move forward today. Um, Last week, I gave you the beginning of this formula. We're still going to sit with it. But if you weren't with us last week, I want you to write this down. And for those of you who were here, what does TW stand for? Time with... And this is a formula we're seeking to equip you with so that when you ask the question, what is disciple making look like? What is the formula for being someone who follows Jesus and seeks to be more and more like Jesus that this becomes what the focus is? It looks like this and it's all a biblical motion together working for the glory of God. And this today in Hebrews chapter 10 is a piece of time with that is important And so if you get nothing else out of this time, I want you to grasp this. In light of what Christ has done, stir up one another towards godly living until you are with the Lord. In light of what Christ has done, stir up one another towards godly living until you are with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 10, I want to start in verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, as we consider these truths, may you open our eyes and by your spirit transform us to be a people who love you and love people and make disciples who make more disciples until you call us home in Jesus name. Amen.
Now, the first matter of importance when we come to this text in Hebrews 10 is this word, therefore, brothers. Now, anytime you encounter this in scripture, we should automatically think this is in the middle of a thought. This is not the beginning of a new thought. It is in light of something that has been said before. And more specifically, this is where the first piece of this main idea comes from. In light of what Christ has done. And the question becomes, what has Christ done? What is it that Jesus has done specifically? And so glance back with me to verse 1 of chapter 10. Where it says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? Now, to summarize this, here's the simplicity of what he's saying. The law, the Old Testament law, by which the sacrifices were made at the temple day after day, year after year, was a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. And the evidence that exists for why that was a foreshadowing of what was to come is because if the sacrifices themselves were enough to cleanse us from all of our sin, then sacrifice would have ceased. And now we understand when we're reading this that the writer of Hebrews is writing this to a primarily Jewish audience who understood all of this. And in fact, as if you read through the whole book of Hebrews, you start to see that it's logical to assume that these sacrificial practices were still taking place when this is being written. It actually says in verse 11 of chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So that, that's present tense. The writer is appealing to something the people are seeing right in front of them and saying the, the Old Testament law was a shadow of what has been done in Jesus. Why would he be appealing to this? Well, because this is being written after Jesus has already died, after he's already resurrected, after he's already ascended. So the writer is appealing to these people to say, stop trying to return to an old way of thinking. You're returning to something that was meant to foreshadow what has already been accomplished through Jesus. Jesus has done what the sacrifices could not do. Christ made one sacrifice for all sin. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is one of those passages that you and I should grab hold of and go, wow. Yes. Christ made one sacrifice for all sin. Why is it important that Jesus is the only way? Because there is no sacrifice that we can make, great or small, that will ever cover our sin enough to be with God forever. 
There is no sacrifice that you and I make, great or small, that will ever be enough. But in Christ, those in Christ are made new, they're perfected. And yet, isn't it interesting in verse 14, by a single offering, Christ, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, the word sanctification is a big word for being made holy. Being made set apart. Now, if we read that, we go, is that a done action or is that ongoing? The sanctification is ongoing. In other words, if you still have breath in your lungs, you have not yet arrived. You are not yet who you are to be in Christ. But the amazing truth in that, the heart of the gospel is, because of Christ... You are already redeemed. It's an already complete but not yet finished work. It is done in Christ, but we together are being made new. We are being redeemed daily. We are being transformed ongoingly. And this then should become the motivation by which we do everything else. It sets the precedence. And then we get to verse 19 where it says, Therefore, in light of these truths. So it starts with Jesus. And then makes this case. Therefore, in light of what has already been done in Christ. We get these exhortations. Draw near. Hold fast. Stir up. Draw near. Hold fast. Stir up. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, everyone say confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Think about that. Think about the access to God being Jesus, visible as the curtain we have to go through in order to get to the Father. There is no other way. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, so we don't need, here's, here's the thing, when it says you, we, need, we have a great priest over the house of God, that's not me. That's not anyone of this earth. Why? Because there is no one of this earth who can make sacrifice for your sins. There is no one of this earth who is more equipped to appeal to God before God the Father than Jesus himself. So when we pray in Jesus' name, the answer to the question, why do we pray in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers? Because it's only through Jesus we have access to God. So we don't pray in Matt's name. Please don't ever do that. Because I cannot, church family, understand this. I will never be able to get you access to the Father. The only thing I can do is point you to the one who can. Jesus will always be the only one who gives us access to God. The great news about that is it means you don't need to come to me to get to God. You in Christ can go to God directly. I give people a hard time sometimes when they come to me. This is a thing that happens. Any event I go to, people ask me to pray. And it's because of my job. And they, and, and I had someone once tell me, well, it means more if you do it. And I go, nope. 
Now, there are certain contexts that scripture does give that authority. In James chapter 5, when someone is deathly ill, there is this step where it says, call on the elders of the church to come and pray with them. Okay? And that's, that's meant to be seen and said when, when faithful men pray, things happen. It's a kind of a sub-point that we should sit with and go, whoa. But as a rule, general rule of thumb, you have the same access to God the Father as I do through Jesus. It's why prayer is such an important part of who we are. It should be anyway. But we miss that. That has been made available to us in Jesus. And yet we kind of demote prayer down to this trivial thing that we just don't practice because, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to go to the creator of the universe with my deepest struggles. Oh my goodness. What are we thinking? But in light of this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of assurance, you you see that language, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, draw near with in full assurance of faith and some of us wrestle with that and we go, I am not sure of anything anymore. And I will tell you that there is no assurance in self here. The assurance that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is not an assurance of self. It's not saying, you know what? I'm really confident in who I am. It's not saying, I really believe in myself. It is an assurance that is rooted in Jesus. I have assurance and confidence to come before God, not because of me, but because of Him. Because of what Jesus has done, I can come boldly, confidently, assuredly, because I know that He has already made the way. It's not dependent on me. This is quite contrary to cultural statements that we hear. Believe in yourself. In fact, last night, as I was kind of finishing this up, I I just Googled that, believe in yourself quotes. It's really interesting. A cool exercise that you could do with your spouse or friends or family is to look up these kind of motivational posters of the culture and pick them apart theologically. Ask the question, what's wrong with this? From a biblical perspective, what's wrong with this? One of the things I came across was this idea of believe in yourself and you can do anything. And as I was reading Hebrews 10, the first thing that came to mind is you can do anything except come before God. No matter how much I believe in my own ability to come before God, I cannot do it apart from Christ. And yet we are raising a generation of people who say, believe in yourself, you can do anything. Well, no, we can't. And the most important of those is we cannot save ourselves. It is only through Christ. And so when we understand what Christ has done, we draw near to God with true heart, full assurance. Assured because we are clean and washed in Christ. That imagery is seen throughout scripture. This idea of cleansing. In Psalm 51, the psalmist prays. This is David writing after he has sinned with Bathsheba. Horrible, wicked thing. Read, read Samuel. Hey, and see what takes place here. David, a man after God's own heart, sees this woman from 
on the roof from his, from his castle and lusts after her and has her come to his bedchambers and then tries to cover it up by bringing her husband home. And when he refuses to go to his wife, he sends him back to war and puts him in the front lines and has him killed. And Nathan the prophet comes before David and confronts him in this sin. And after that, we get Psalm 51, where it says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, in that passage, what is the psalmist appealing to? Who is able to cleanse that person? It's God. He's, he's writing this and pleading with God, create in me, cleanse me, wash me. It's not something he can do himself. In the same way, in, uh, it's, it's actually in uh, John chapter 13. It says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus, this is when he's washing the disciples' feet. And Simon says to him, Oh Lord, don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Wash all of me. And Jesus says to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And the, the imagery here of being washed in Christ, what, is that, what does that look like? It is done in Christ when we believe in the name of Jesus to be saved, when we recognize there is no other way to the Father but through Christ. There is a cleansing that happens, a cleansing that makes it possible for us to stand before a holy God. Once again, it's only through who? Jesus. Everyone say Jesus. It's only through Christ. In light of what Christ has done, we draw near to God. We do that together. That's the point of Sunday morning, that we would draw near to God together. But it doesn't stop there. Let us hold fast. 23. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our what? Of our hope. Everyone say hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. Once again, we don't hold fast the confession of our hope because we're doing okay. I know for a fact, people within our church family in this last week have suffered incredible loss. People within our church family in the last week have had immense celebration, gratitude. People within our church family that just don't know what's next. And are worried about what's coming. People within our church family that are trying to figure out what life looks like now. That everything seems to have changed. If our hope is anywhere else. Then we come to this place of saying let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Where is our hope? Our hope should be in Christ, right? But the better question for us to ask ourselves is where is our hope? hope and i'll ask you church family if we see a day in our lifetimes where we're no longer able to assemble in a building like this will we become discouraged or will we be motivated to hope if our hope is in our ability to gather like this then we will not be able to hold fast to the confession of our hope if our hope is rooted in an earthly relationship like our marriage or our families then some of you have already experienced that, this void that happens with, who am I now? Because 
that's gone. And we realize that my hope was more in this earthly relationship than it was in Christ. And the exhortation here is in light of what Jesus has done. Hold fast the confession of our hope. It's implying that our hope is rooted in what Christ has done. Why? Because it cannot be taken away. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6 when he says, Store up for yourselves treasures on heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because where your treasure is, there's your heart will be also. That's where it's going to be. He who promised is faithful. We hope in the character of God. Or at least we should. The amazing truth about this family. When we think about the battles that are waging around us. The only victory that is found in any of the battles we face. As a, as a country, as a people, as individuals. The only victory is found in God's already established purposes and plans. And we've sang that before here. We're fighting a battle. He's already won. And I heard something this last week that said, what kind, what level of coward do we have to be to not get up and fight in a battle we're promised victory in? And instantly I was humbled and going, how often do we walk and live in fear? And yet scripture has given us the hope of victory in light of what Jesus has already done. He's already done it. First Corinthians chapter one talks about this. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Christ. That is why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We utter our let it be so because God has already established this. Let us draw near, let us hold fast. 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but all the more as the day draws near. The crazier things get, the more we should get together. This is the time with part, family. When we're thinking about disciple making and being disciples who make more disciples... This gathering on Sunday morning is not the main event. And I'll give a... How many of you are going to go home and watch the Super Bowl today? Not very many of you. I honestly don't know if I will either. But, to give an illustration, we are prone to think that Sunday morning is the Super Bowl event. And yet... Sunday morning should be the halftime huddle. How does that change our thinking? Well, the main event is where we put into practice what we've talked about. The main event is ultimately what the aim and the goal is. It's where we're on the field. Family, there's nothing about this morning that is on the field. And everything about this that is a locker room conversation is say, remember that our hope is in Jesus. Remember what Christ has already done. Remember that God is faithful. He has been faithful. He will be faithful. He's already won. And then as we leave, we go, now go from this place and do exactly what God in Christ has called us to do.
it's the halftime huddle. The danger is when we make this the main event, then we check the box, we come here, we leave, we go home, we continue on our own main event. And it's like we walked out of the locker room, not onto the field, but into the parking lot and drove away in our cars and said, well, it's pretty good talk. I guess we're going to continue doing what we do. Instead of going, no, we're stepping onto the field and I'm not alone. Because it takes the body to do what only the body can do. The crazier things get, the more we should get together. All the more, is what 25 says. All the more as you see the day drawing near. That means when you see wars and rumors of wars, when you see things getting worse and worse, when you see things happening, that you just go, oh, it's getting bad, it's got to be coming soon. For one, all the more we should draw near to God, hold fast to our hope, and then stir one another up by meeting together. And if we neglect to do that, we neglect to do what God has called us to do. But we do not meet just to meet, or we shouldn't. But rather to stir one another up to love and good works. Not because, here's important, not because the love and good works save us, but because we are saved. In light of what Jesus has already done, we get together and we encourage each other to go, let's follow Jesus together. Follow me as I follow Christ. We invite people onto that journey and we say, I have a hope and a joy that can't be phased because I know what Jesus has already done. So why do we get together? What's the purpose of the halftime huddle family? To encourage the weary, to celebrate the victories, to refocus our attentions and our affections, to mend broken bonds between one another, to be reminded that we are not alone, to be reminded that we're on the same team, or we should be, to equip each other for the ministry of the week. To exhort one another if we're living in sin. You see, that word for stir up has a range of meaning that also means to provoke or even at times to irritate. And the image there is almost like a bad rash that you just can't help but scratch. It's, I mean, that's a really practical application point. As a follower of Jesus, who's seeking to be a disciple who makes more disciples, be a really itchy person. Where you're just like, man, I just can't, I just can't help it. And now I'm going to give some to you. I'm going to make you itchy too. Uh, you, but no, right? It's, it's the language here to stir one another up. Because what happens when I'm intentional to stir one another up? It changes the dynamic of who I am. Right? And that, in the process of being stirred up, I become something that I wasn't before. And all of a sudden, I realize that my purpose for gathering with my fellow brothers and sisters, is not just to 
consume more powder, to add more flavor to who I am. It's to say, hey, I'm going to bring my spoon with me. I'm going to stir you up and I want you to stir me up. Because here's the reality throughout the week. You know what I'm prone to do? I'm prone to sit. And the longer I sit, the more that separation happens between my flesh and the spirit of God. So what do I need? I need brothers and sisters who bring their spoon with them and go, I'm going to stir you up, brother. And sometimes I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's uncomfortable and I'm going, I don't want to be stirred up. Leave me alone. But that doesn't mean I don't need it. And so that's what Proverbs says when it says, Better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. A close friend who desires for you to be more like Jesus. They come and they stir you up and you go, oh, it's uncomfortable. Stop it. Scripture would say, no, 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 no. We need to be faithful to stir one another up faithfully. Not because of what is happening in the world, but because of what Jesus has done. The more the world deteriorates the more stirred up we need to become. And the more focused we need to become on Jesus. Amen? In light of what Christ has done, my challenge to you, family, is to stir one another up. Bring your spoons. That's your application, right? Bring your spoons. Every time you use a spoon this week, I want you to think about this. Seriously. You bring your spoons and even this could become a fun thing that people who are brand new and never heard this message would think you're weird. Every time you pick up a spoon, you point it at someone. Right. And everyone here or who listens to this message is going to go, ah, I know what he's talking about. And everyone else is like, what's the deal with the spoons that he free? What, what's up with this? Like, I'm going to stir you up, brother, sister. And I want you to do the same for me. All the more as we see the day drawing near. Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. With our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And as you, as you stand with me, we're going, to, we're going to pray this. As we prepare to step out into a world that desperately needs the hope of Christ. To stir one another up towards this. All right? Let's say this together, family. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving me disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As I go through every part of this day, help me to love you and love the people who cross my path, starting with my family. Don't let me miss the adventures you are sending my way to live and speak the good news about Jesus today. Draw my heart to you and to specific people you want me to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform me into a follower of Jesus who loves you, loves people, and makes disciples who make more disciples ad infinitum. In Jesus' name.